0: Welcome to the Data Pulse. I'm your host, Anika. In this podcast, I dive into the growing role that data science plays in the latest biomedical innovations. Join me as I go behind the scenes and check the pulse with domain experts and rising stars who are leading advances in data-driven human health. Today, I'm here with Dr. Sam Sinai and Dr. Jeff Gerald. Sam is co-founder and lead ML scientist at Dino Therapeutics, a company using machine learning to discover novel gene therapy vectors. Sam is a computational biologist with expertise in evolution and machine learning. He received his PhD at Harvard, where he developed the underpinnings of Dino's machine learning strategy in collaboration with Eric Kelsick. He previously obtained his BS and MENG in computer science at MIT. Jeff is head of data science at Dyno. Jeff is a computational biologist with expertise in modeling and statistics. He also received his PhD at Harvard, where he worked on modeling the evolution of cancers and HIV. He previously obtained his BS in biomedical engineering at Washington University in St. Louis. Sam and Jeff, thanks so much for joining me. It's a pleasure to have you here today.
1: Thank you for having us. Thanks, Anika. It's great to be here.
0: So I'd love to start by learning about your journey to Dino. How did the two of you meet, and what brought you to the world of gene therapy?
2: We met because we were lab mates at Harvard. Me and Jeff were in a computational and mathematical biology lab, and we worked on different things. When I started my PhD, I worked on very theoretical problems related to origins of life. And Jeff was working on HIV and cancer, uh, all modeling problems. And over the course of my PhD, I transitioned uh, to working more closely with the church lab. And there I met Eric Kelsick. Um, And while I worked on these problems, Jeff was sitting next to me for a long time. So we were office mates for five years. And that was sort of the foundation of our relationship.
1: For my own part, it was a great opportunity to hear about this really amazing and interesting uh, problem. So I, uh, I kind of I got infected with it thanks to uh, Sam, and <laughs> that's that's been a, a real blessing.
0: That's wonderful. So clearly your paths have overlapped for some time, and it seems like you both were opportunistic in finding this shared interest. How did you determine that? Designing viral vectors for gene therapy was a problem that was well-suited for machine learning.
2: So after the second year of my PhD, I was very interested in working in domains that were at the boundary of living and non-living. So I was interested in viruses. And when I was searching for projects that were of interest and suited my background in computer science, uh, I came across this project that was envisioned by Eric Kelsig, who is the current CEO of Dyno, back then a postdoc at, at Church Lab. And we started collaborating. And basically, the idea of designing a protein with machine learning was coming up in many different labs. But Eric's vision was that if we can come up with a Application of machine learning that the protein you get at the end is something that's very impactful. That that's another order of magnitude of um, both impact and importance and sort of usability. So the AAV capsid protein was the sort of proof of concept and also applicable project that Eric had defined. So I joined him to help um, reach a a good um, demonstration or prototype of this platform at Harvard, and once we actually succeeded in doing that through many collaborations, including with Google, uh, we felt like it is ready to turn it into an industrial project where we can actually uh, push it forward. So the experiments we did at Harvard were only in mice, but now we are expanding it much more with the goal of eventually making it available in human gene therapy.
0: Very neat, so there is an evolution of the project where you actually were able to establish the proof of concept within the academic lab. That is correct. And then you said, basically, you had the proof of concept in mice and you determined that that was a good benchmark at which you could then transition into industry. Were there other sort of metrics or things you assessed in order to make that leap?
2: I think the main question was whether this protein that we've picked, because it is consisted of a collective of many single proteins that come together, assemble into a viral capsid. So it's not your standard academic sort of one protein that's easy to study. It's challenging. It's hard to model with current computational methods. So one question was, can we even do any machine learning that is useful? So Mm -hmm. that was the first benchmark that we passed. The second benchmark was, well, can we get it to work in vitro and then in vivo. So the mouse is sort of the end of that cycle. And we, we assumed, given that there is a lot of experience with transitioning gene therapies from mice to non-human primates, and eventually to humans, which is nascent, but still there is experience outside academia with that, we thought it would be a good time to do this transition. Also, it's just harder to get these bigger projects going in an academic lab in a setting that we were like two or three people, maybe at, at times five people working on it. Whereas at Dyno, we are much, much bigger.
0: Got it. Got it. That growth makes sense. So I'd love to jump into the technology and think about the role that data science plays at Dino. Can we start off by talking about some of the underlying principles behind gene therapy and the traditional workflow that Must exist in order to develop a gene therapy?
1: So, I can start by saying that at a high level, a a gene therapy has both a payload and a delivery mechanism. So, a payload is some amount of uh, genetic information that you want to add to some cells or uh, to modify their genetic information. And the delivery mechanism is just how do you get it there? And of course, both of these components are essential. Uh, At Dyno, we're focused on the delivery mechanism in part because we see that problem as having a lot of shared structure across many different uh, applications. And I should also add that this separation of the problem into two components uh, isn't perfect, but the delivery mechanism needs to overcome a lot of hurdles uh, to make a gene therapy successful so some of those hurdles are the ability to transduce like actually uh, put the genetic material into the nuclei of the right cells uh, the ability to limit off-target effects you don't want that to happen in some other cell types it also should be possible to produce uh, gene therapies efficiently and uh, that alone is a big barrier to gene therapy access because producing the biological products for certain gene therapies is extremely expensive currently. Additionally, the delivery mechanism can stimulate some uh, immune responses and at Dyno we want to limit those as well. So we're trying to work on uh, all of these things uh, simultaneously. At a higher level, at Dyno we're really excited about the future of gene therapy, both um, enabling access to more people for gene therapy, uh, as well as making gene therapy uh, more relevant uh, for additional diseases. And we'd like people to imagine a future where they're uh, freed from the constraints of this uh, delivery problem and think about what they could accomplish if delivery weren't an issue.
0: Right. So it sounds like Dino is addressing quite a few potential current limitations or bottlenecks that exist in gene delivery. And a lot of these are inherent to naturally existing capsids or or viral vectors. Can you talk a little bit about the capsid map platform that the company has, which uses quantitative and high throughput in vivo experimentation, but combined with machine learning? To design new gene vectors. What is the typical approach to building out a map of what you call the capsid fitness landscape?
2: As a concrete example, I will mention an early prototype of a pipeline that we developed at Harvard in collaboration with a team at Google. And in that one, our objective was to optimize or maximize sequence diversity because we postulated it would help in the downstream task of avoiding immunity. But we had this constraint that we wanted the viruses to still be viable. And of course, you can generate a lot of diversity with random mutagenesis, but our constraint meant that we wanted to optimize for a high yield. And we also wanted to go deeper into the sequence space than it was possible with conventional methods. By deeper, I mean, we wanted to have a farther edit distance from the wild type that we started at. To do this, we first generated a data set of mutants within a 28 amino acid region of the viral capsid. This was due to our limitations of direct synthesis at the time. And we generated random mutants as well as very simple uh, single site directed models. And then we partitioned this data that we collected into multiple subsets and used them in conjunction with models to propose new sequences. The models we used ranged from simple baseline models like logistic regression to more complex models like convolutional neural networks or recurrent neural networks. In each case, we also ensembled the models so that we can get some sense of robustness and uncertainty. We used a simple one-hot embedding to represent all of these sequences and train the models on them. And then we generated around 200,000 sequences that were varied in the 28 amino acid target region that we were interested in, and then we experimentally validated all of them. The key metrics that mattered in this case were the precision, which is the proportion of attempts that were viable, as well as diversity, which we characterized by looking at how far into the sequence space We could go, how much can we change the sequence without losing the ability to package, as well as how many clusters in different parts of the sequence space we discovered in which we could find viable viruses. And ultimately, we showed that we could diversify this region significantly beyond what is available in the natural repertoire.
0: So when you think about the pipeline of this, you gather this high-throughput data, as you mentioned, which is in the form of millions of capsid sequences that are then synthesized and assembled into capsid libraries. And then you test them for various properties. And then eventually you actually input into machine learning models. And this helps you identify the full landscape of fitness. There is this constant balance that needs to be maintained between exploration and optimization. So say you have... Million different capsids you're looking at, and you are trying to find which one, according to the features of interest, is the most fit for the task at hand, whether that's helping with immune evasion or carrying a larger payload or improving the ability of the capsid to target the cells of interest. How do you think about this balance?
2: It's an excellent question. I think part of that comes from guidance in terms of the business development side, whereas how much time do we have? How long is the horizon of our experiments? One um, additional aspect that we have in terms of um, our experiments in Dyno is that we are doing multiple experiments, multiple optimization tasks for different uh, viral profiles that we are trying to optimize for, depending on what the um, research plan or what, what we are trying to do. And these experiments actually all give information to our models. And so our models can learn from multiple different experiments that are designed for different optimization tasks, but in some sense are explorations in the other optimization tasks that you're not paying attention to at that moment. So. This exploration exploitation trade-off, obviously, if you have only one round of experiments to optimize something, you wanna immediately try to optimize. If you know you can do multiple rounds of experiments, that's what I call a horizon, then you know you have some time to do exploration and then um, try to optimize later on once your model's gotten better than the first iteration. Some of the heuristics that we use is how many experiments do we have? And what have we learned from other experiments? So how can we incorporate that information into our optimization task here?
0: Right. So a very iterative process that, as you mentioned, is context-specific, driven by what the task is and what the question is that you're trying to answer. Correct. And it really sounds like data science and wet lab science complement each other quite well at Dyno. Are there intentional structures you've built in place, either with the teams or the way that you do science at Dyno that enables this crosstalk throughout various stages of the process?
1: Well, I think you brought up a really important point, which is that uh, Dyno is not, is not just a data science uh, company, actually. We're also doing uh, our own experiments. And uh, in many senses, that's the majority of, of the effort at Dyno so having the ability to couple these experiments with the data science pipeline including uh, the machine learning components i think is really uh, the strength and on that subject we we benefit a lot from really talented computational people but we also benefit from really talented experimental scientists that enable us to uh, measure additional features uh, or measure those features more precisely of certain capsids. And so uh, you could think of it like they add new layers.
2: i want to I want to mention something about that, actually. The data science team also works as a glue between all these different parts of the company. So it's not that experimental pipelines don't have any interaction with data science there are uh, quality control steps at each part of the experiment with a lot of communication with a lot of mutual education on behalf the experimentalists educate the data scientists about what has worked out and what has not worked out and what what are they looking for and the data scientists also do the same thing trying to come up with better measures uh, to get to the ground truth Defining different steps of the experiments and deciding when a data scientist or the whole data science pipeline comes in and interacts with each of those steps is a fundamental part of Dyno. And similarly, between data science and machine learning algorithms, we are trying to make it as clear as possible about when and how different components of these pipelines need to check with each other to ensure that we are coherent and we are relying on sound data throughout.
1: I just want to add that I think one of the core reasons why a lot of people come to Dino is this opportunity to learn. And for me, it was an opportunity to learn especially a lot more about how experimental science in this high-throughput context uh, is done. But in other ways, uh, people come wanting to gain more exposure to data science or uh, machine learning or certain aspects of both. and. I think the attitude that everyone at Dyno is there to learn and promoting that as as part of what it means to be uh, at Dyno is a really critical part of the the culture that helps to facilitate uh, this interaction. And it also uh, helps us all get better at the company.
0: Definitely. Uh, A theme that I've recognized from speaking to a lot of folks at this intersection is having a level of humility and understanding that you might come with familiarity in one of the areas, but that probably complements another area that you still have room to grow and learn from. So, when each of you think about the skills that you have developed to get to where you are today with Dino, and I'm sure as Dino continues to evolve, you are further building upon these. How have you approached skill building?
1: I'd say that. There are a lot of things at Dyno that uh, I was prepared for uh, well by by undergrad and, and grad school. Um, but there's also a, a lot of things that I uh, wasn't prepared for at all. And um, at a startup, especially, we uh, are experiencing somewhat rapid change uh, every day and, and everyone uh, has to wear a lot of hats. So for a period of time, I became really an expert at retrieving the Grubhub deliveries (laughs) uh, every day. And, uh, you know, I I wanted my own lunch, so I was always happy to to do that. Um, But it was also my first time uh, learning to manage people. And so there's um, a lot of on the job training that uh, has happened for me there. I think your point about the Humility in the context of a culture of learning is is really important here. Uh, to just being able to benefit from the expertise of the people around me has been, I think, one of the best mechanisms for skill building uh, that that I've experienced. One last thing to add is, you know, coming from the data science side of things uh, and thinking about what are the really essential features of um, expertise that enable working at this intersection of computation and biology. Um, Some basic understanding of the biological sciences is is essential, you can't get anywhere without that. But I think there's also a a language and an aspect of uh, communication which um, can be built, at least one way to build it is by interacting with people who do experiments often and and seeing how they. talk about their uh, experiments. And so being able to have that communication, I think is another essential skill.
2: On the technical side, I definitely think that my preparation in undergrad and graduate school helped me being being able to talk to both people on the more computational side as well as people on the biology side it's obviously something that I just speak the language to some degree and I have a lot to learn in every dimension still. So that's an opportunity at Dyno as well because we hire people who are experts in either of these domains. But the things that we really have to learn is to adapt quickly in a startup environment. We have gone from two, three people to... 25 people in within a year and your responsibilities change every day and you have to learn to adapt to that new situation and see how you can be the best member of the team that you can and help people also be their best. And so a lot of the skills that we had to learn, um, both me and Jeff, was about being able to listen better and um, be able to communicate better with people and being able to prioritize your own time into being most effective at uh, the team objective that you have, which is different from being a graduate student and having control over all the parameters of a project that you are assigned to, or at least a majority of those parameters. Now you have to trust other people to do uh, even a better job than you would, and you have to just enable them as, as much as possible. And that is not something that you learn in grad school right away. And Dino has given me the opportunity to learn that. That's
0: fantastic. In addition to the science to really develop a product that is built by a team and a culture where people are encouraged to learn and to seek out new knowledge. I think that takes a great deal of leadership. Well, thank you both, Jeff and Sam, for joining me today. It's been very insightful talking with you.
1: Thank you, too. Was great. Thank you.
0: Thanks for joining me on today's episode of The Data Pulse. If any of the terms used in today's conversation were foreign to you, feel free to check out the podcast glossary where I've included definitions and links to resources that my guests have shared. Be sure to tune in next week to once again get a sneak peek into the pulse of data-driven biomedicine.